John chapter 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lot for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. As I prepared for this, as I was thinking, probably one of the best ways to preface this text would be to say, open your mind and try to hear it as if brand new. As Dave just read that to you, it's like, oh, it's Easter time. This is an Easter passage. And I want you to set aside the holiday calendar of the church. It's August 12th. Okay, and this is the text that God has brought us to for this morning, and it is exactly what we need to hear, and it's no coincidence that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, This is, it's holy ground as far as text goes. It is the death of Christ. It's the death of the Son of God, and so I I think that sometimes familiarity can be our worst enemy when we come to the scriptures. Well, we've heard the story, we kind of know what happens, and yet just let the little details, let the, let the context and let the circumstances just sink in and wash over you as we go through and let them speak to you. Let the narrative tell its story. And I pray that that's my aim as I teach this text. Should we live and believe, live according to and believe this text, I think that we would become and will become the most free and joyful Christians I'm not going to relativize that, but just incredibly free. Now, this this text could not be more steeped in solemnness and pain and darkness and sadness from a human perspective. But if if we wrestle with and grapple with what Christ is doing here, and if we understand it, we are released from guilt. We are released from bitterness. We are released from grudge holding. We are released from our bondage to sin. And so again, we need to invite and appreciate the Holy Spirit's work as we go through this. And I want to ask you even now, ask God to come and speak to you as you listen to this, that your heart would be open to this text Because again, there's no possible way that I can do justice to this text. And so I ask that God would be moving and speaking to you. And I trust and I know that he will be. And so I pray that you would come and meet him um, as he declares his truth to us. So our context of this passage, and we, we went away from it last week as we were in the park, but we did stay on the message of reconciliation. And, and that's what this passage really is about. But our context in the Gospel of John is that Christ has already passed through three completely separate court appearances. He's appeared before Cephas, the high priest, or I'm sorry, Caiaphas. He's appeared before Pilate, and he's appeared before Herod. Three separate court appearances, all of which found no criminal behavior in the life of Christ. Now, the Jews did accuse him of blasphemy. But they had no criminal behavior to attribute to this charge. In, in the Gospel of John particularly, Pilate, we see, is relentlessly pursuing the subject of Jesus as the king. You can't miss that all the way through. He will not drop the subject. Even though the Jews are re- rebuking him and, and refuting him, 
Pilate will not drop the subject. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? He won't drop it. And we see that it's an important theme to John in this gospel. I don't know why Pilate was so particular about that. I, I think that possibly part of it was that he was about to crucify um, somebody who may be a king of the people he's supposed to be ruling over. This would be a bad move for a, a governing authority. At any rate, Pilate is, is relentless on this topic, and John uh, displays it for us, and it's rich for us. Pilate, in this recent, um, in, in chapter 19, through the trial, Pilate boasted of his own authority and then proved that he had no more authority than the mob granted him. He said to Jesus, don't you know how much authority I have? And he could say that in private, and then he would go out and he would be totally unable to do what his power told him to do. He, he governed according to convenience and according to pragmatic results, which was keeping peace and staying in power. And sadly, that's how most of our politicians govern today, for uh, certain votes. And then Christ comes along and says, you govern according to your principles. And Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth when Pilate asked him what kind of kingdom he had. So Jesus claims a kingdom that totally represents and embodies all truth, the opposite of what Pilate was uh, exercising. And so Pilate grants the Jewish mob their cry. It says in the last verse of two weeks ago's passage, so he delivered them over him over to the Jews to be crucified. And so we have now before us John's telling of the death of the Son of God. All the fullness of God, the full deity of God, dwelling bodily in Christ and his death. What I would say without any apology would be the central event in all human history thus far. Only to be superseded by the return of Christ. This event in human history defines humanity. It defines human history. It divides people. It's the only event in the world that truly separates people. Are you a subject of the king or are you still his enemy? Are you washed in the blood of Christ or are you still in your sin? And so let's look at our text. It really uh, falls into three very clear categories. John speaks of the charge. The king of the Jews written above his head as Jesus ascends the hill of death. This is his crucifixion. Then John speaks of the completion of God's work as Jesus dies. So we have his crucifixion. We have his death. And then he speaks of the enduring witness of this event, which is under the category of his burial and the events surrounding after he died and tells us the significance of that for humanity for all time. So let's look at the end of verse 16 and then going into our text, we have the charge. The charge that Pilate uh, wrote above Jesus' head. This is the crucifixion of Christ. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side. Every other account, all the other three gospel accounts, tell us that the man who carried Jesus' cross was Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. And here John tells us Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Now for many, this would maybe present a problem with gospel harmony. Oh, there's contradiction in the Bible. 
And I'm just going to quickly address that very likely they gave Jesus his cross to carry and he went out from the place of judgment bearing his own cross, but because of the abuse that he had suffered, collapsed under exhaustion and pain. And, and they, the other gospels say they compelled a man, Simon, to carry the cross for Christ. They compelled him, meaning we need to get this cross up to the hill. You need to come and do it. And so uh, therein you have uh, the harmony of the gospels. But John wants us to see that Christ began with his cross. Under all the, the physical duress, and spiritual stress that he was under, uh, he, he went out bearing his own cross, and he collapsed, and, and another man took it for him. Executions of this type in Rome uh, included the inscription of the charge laid against that criminal, so that when a person was hanging on a cross, passers-by would see their crime, see their charge. These were all very public. And Rome would, would be able to communicate the laws of the land and the severity of criminal behavior through this picture. The crime would be written above, insurrection, robbery. In Jesus' case, what does Pilate write? What is his charge? What is his crime? He writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He was a king. This is the crime that he had committed against the Jewish nation and ostensibly against the Roman nation. He was a king. And later on, this would become a major conflict for early Christians because the confession was Jesus Christ is Lord. And Caesar demanded that he would be called Lord. And so there is a confrontation of leaders, a confrontation of sovereigns. Who is the true sovereign? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus Christ? And early Christians insisted it is Christ. He is on his throne. Nobody is higher than him. And so here we have the charge. He's the king of the Jews. And the Jews turn around and they don't like this. They feel maybe as if they're being mocked or as if they're being ignored or trivialized because they say, Pilate, don't write that he is a king. That makes us look foolish. Why would we crucify our own king? They say to Pilate, you need to write, he said he was the king. Because they thought they could refute this. They thought it was just blasphemy. Don't write that he is the king of the Jews. Write that he claimed to be. We want people to think that he's crazy. We want people to think that he is out of his mind. That he is trying to start rebellion. That he is trying to start um, some kind of ruckus. We want people to think that he is outside of the truth. And so he made a claim. We'll just call him crazy. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And so you can hear, you can see here, Pilate is just not moving from this stance. And I, and I, I wrestle with, who, what is Pilate? What is going through his mind? What, where is he now? How did he die? Did he call out to Christ in faith at some point before his life was over? Because in these moments, you can see how difficult it is for him. And, and yet how conflicted he is. He honestly almost believes that Christ is a king, and yet he crucifies him. There is a man in inner turmoil, I'm sure, to say the least. And I think that when the Jews utter these words, do not write that he is a king, but rather write. Uh, this is... As I was just saying, this is the separating factor of human history. Who was Jesus Christ? Did he just lay claim to a throne? 
or is he on a throne? This is the fundamental question that every human being has to answer. Does it matter how I live my life before God? Or does it not matter? Does it matter how I interact with Jesus Christ? Whether or not I believe him, whether or not I trust in him, whether or not I submit to him, does it matter because he just claimed to be a king? Or is he a king? And last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we persuade others. This is the fundamental reason that we compel other people into the church and into faith. It's not because we want to make converts. It's not because we want to make our churches bigger to get more money. It's none of that. It's because we understand that Christ is who he said he was. He didn't just claim to be a king. He is the king. And so we revere him as such and we worship him as such and we honor him as such. So the fundamental tension is here exposed of Jesus Christ. In the prologue, which is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, John kind of lays out his thesis. And I had made this point a lot earlier in my preaching, but I haven't come back to it in a while. In the prologue, he lays out the basic theme of the whole book. And we notice in the prologue, one of the things that John picks up on that he says, this is going to be a repeating theme. It says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So even to the point where Pilate writes above the cross of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, even at that point, even when he's already dying, the Jews say, we will not accept him as our king. You would think at that point they could just let him go. They got what they wanted. He's going to die. Does it matter what's written above him? It echoes and it drives home this point that his own did not receive him. They would not receive him. And so as Jesus ascended to the hill of death, his true identity hovered over him. Even as he hung on the cross, his true identity was blaring out in three languages of the time so that no matter who you were, you would pass by Christ and you would see that he was the king of the Jews. He was the true king that he claimed to be. And then we have the soldiers at the foot of the cross. We have the soldiers at the foot of the cross and, and they took his garments and divided them. Now the soldiers or the uh, prisoners would not have been uh, crucified wearing their common clothing. They would have been stripped down, either naked or having a small loin covering themselves. And the soldiers would cast or were divided up because, I mean, why not, right? It's sort of a perk of being a soldier. And we learned that there's four soldiers at the foot of the cross of Christ and they were dividing up his clothing And then they came to his tunic. They came to his tunic, which might have been the outer covering that somebody would wear. They came to his tunic, and they found that the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. Now, obviously, they recognize, hey, there's no natural seam in this. Now, if there was a natural seam where it had been sewn, you can easily separate that and still have a clean piece of cloth two ways or three ways. And they noticed it was one single woven fabric. And so you, unless you had a pair of scissors, which I doubt the Roman soldiers had at that time, they didn't want to tear it because it would make it just a rag, a useless rag. 
And they say, let us instead cast lots to see which of the four of us will get this. And John uh, picks up on this and says that this was to fulfill the scriptures when it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is from Psalm 22 that we just read. From Psalm 22. Now, is this coincidence? That the Old Testament speaks of these moments particular to the crucifixion of Christ? Is this a coincidence? John is writing, remember, in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, I'm writing to you these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm writing these things so that you will believe. And so when I tell you the details of his crucifixion, and then I show you a passage that was written hundreds of years earlier, you must recognize it's not a coincidence. This is the plan of God taking place, unfolding perfectly as he planned it. And so the soldiers are fulfilling scripture here. And then while the soldiers did these things in verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he said, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Now, in the Gospel of John, we do see in multiple places that there is a disciple that the writer says, uh, of whom the writer says, This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see this at the Last Supper that the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining against his shoulder, kind of leaning up against him. And most people agree that this is the writer of the gospel himself inserting himself in third person to remain somewhat anonymous, not to be like, and then I was there. It's to say, this is a disciple of a particular identity, and many believe that this is the disciple John. And Jesus looks down from the cross where he hangs barely able to breathe, and he sees his own mother. And he says to the woman, his mother, behold your son. And he refers over to John. And he says to John, behold your mother. He unites these two who had been following him. We know that many women followed Christ and they were identified as as well as the, the disciples. And so Jesus recognizes his own mother's need for companionship and for somebody young, a man to help with work, to maybe earn a living. And Jesus, from his place of agony, struggling to breathe, calls down and takes care of his own. He unites them together for care and companionship. Now, this could have probably been maybe done earlier. Hey, by the way, I mean, Jesus knew he was going to die, right? Like Mary, by the way, or mother, you know, after I'm gone, uh, I think it'd be good if you and John maybe moved in together and he could take care of you as you're getting older. And, um, you know, you could kind of nurture him and and care for him. And I just want to arrange that ahead of time. And yet it's from the cross that he calls these things out and had me thinking, I don't know what is explicit or not here in the text, but it's almost as if the cross is seen as the source of everything good. It's the source of our needs being met. It's Christ from the cross taking care of his own symbolizing through his agony that he is yet meeting the needs of his people. And it's amazing because in the death of Christ, we don't become morbid Christians. We don't become um, morose or depressed. 
It's in the cross of Christ that we find meaning. Jesus is essentially saying to these two on the ground, life is going to go on for you. You have practical lives to live. You have needs. You got to make a living. You got to take care of chores around the house. And even as he is dying on the cross, he sees to it that these people find their future meaning, their future relationship intact, despite his own suffering and his death, that life will go on for those in Christ. And he is leading us in those things. And so this is section one. This is the crucifixion. Section two, the completion. The completion. So John tells us that from that hour, he took care of Jesus' mother. Then we have the completion, the death of Jesus Christ. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said in brackets again to fulfill scripture, I thirst, and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth so that he could take a drink from the sponge. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Which is to say that he died. He gave up his struggle with death. Too much can be said about this phrase for me to possibly do it in the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. But... We do find deep peace at the sounds of these words. And if we can plumb these out, I truly believe this is the, this is the core declaration of the good news. That it is finished. First, we need to recognize that these words were declared by a king. Okay, it wasn't just one of the other thieves that was like, it's finished. John makes great lengths to show us that it is the king of the Jews, and not only just of the Jews, but of, an, of a heavenly kingdom, it is that king who is declaring that it is finished, meaning that anything this king says is binding, it is unalterable, it is irreversible, it is everlasting, and it is true. So when the king on the cross cries out, it is finished, it is finished. There is no epilogue. There is no PS. There is no secret song on the CD. It is over. When Jesus declares it is finished, it is a declaration of the king of the universe. As I said, it's one of the central claims of the entire New Testament. One of the central claims of the New Testament, the Christian faith, is that in Jesus Christ, all is complete. Without Jesus Christ, nothing is complete. And again, people mistake this as uh, Christian exclusivism. Christians are just more exclusive than other religions. Because other religions say, oh yeah, we believe this, but you can believe whatever you want. But those pesky Christians, they won't say that. Why don't they give us the grace to believe whatever we want? And people mistake us for having a more exclusive persona or a more exclusive ethos of the religion. We're just more stuck up to say, hey, ours is exclusive. While other religions give more like, yeah, you can kind of believe whatever you want. You know, all roads lead up the mountain. They say things like this. But it's not built within us to be exclusive. It is Christ who says it is finished. It is Christ who says the work is done. 
You must be found in him to find completion and meaning and restitution and renewal and reconciliation with God. It is out of his lips that he declares exclusivity. We are only exclusive because we are messengers of the great messenger. We are messengers of the king. We are not free to alter his message. So he took a drink of sour wine. He breathed in his final breath. And with his final breath, he chose these three words. It is finished. What else could he have chosen to say? Many things. Yet he chose three words, at least in our English translation. He chose three words that could not be more final, complete, resolute, definitive, and authoritative. With his final dying breath, he declared that it was finished. So what was he talking about? What was he talking about? The pain? Finally, it's over. And then he died. What did he mean when he said, it is finished? What was he referring to? I think as, as I will demonstrate, it's the words of a satisfied workman in the completion of his task. The primary work of Jesus Christ as he came to the earth was to do the will of the Father. He said that over and over in John. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father gives me to say. I only save the people that God gives me to save. Jesus did everything according to the will of his Father. Everything, every demand of God, Jesus met. The primary work of Jesus Christ was to satisfy the demands of God on behalf of God's people. God's people at that time were the Jews, Israel, the nation. The Old Testament tells us a story of Israel being God's people and failing to live up to their part of the covenant that God makes with them. God makes a covenant. If you keep my commandments, I will bless you. If you rebel against me, I will curse you. Israel always fell into the cursed category. They could not satisfy the demands of God. And so God sent a covenant-keeping son, his own son, to fulfill the covenant, to keep the law, to satisfy the demands of God. And Christ came and he did that. Now, I'm going to reference a couple passages, and I don't want you to turn there at the moment, but the New Testament echoes this time and time again. Romans chapter 10 teaches us that in Jesus Christ, the demands of God's law have been satisfied for those who are in him. Which means that when God looks at you, he no longer judges how well you're keeping the law because he knows that we have failed that. And so he looks at Christ when he looks at you, and his demands are satisfied. Likewise, in the way that Adam failed to keep God's commands, Jesus perfectly fulfilled every letter of them. When Jesus came, he said, I did not come to abolish God's law. I came to fulfill it. I came to, I came to give it its full meaning, to give it full expression, to give it reality on the earth. And in the same way, the curse that we deserve because we failed God, Jesus took God's curse on our behalf. Galatians chapter 3 reminds us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
Jesus became a curse for us. He became the curse that we deserved even though he was the only one who ever satisfied God. He was the only one who ever deserved God's blessing and yet he became the one who took God's cursing. This is substitution. This is Christ substituting himself for us in God's eyes. He gave God, Jesus gave God a righteous life and God gave to him the blessings of the covenant. Every work and every promise that God had laid out all throughout the Old Testament found their completion, their satisfaction, and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All the work of God found its completion in Christ. There's this amazing passage, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Everything God ever intended to do or plans to do will be done through his son Christ. He promised in Genesis chapter 3 that the head of the serpent was going to be crushed. This took place on the cross of Christ. He promised in Psalm 86 that he would be worshipped by every nation. We find this true in Jesus Christ. We have the promise of, from God that there would be an eternal throne to the house of David, that David would never lack an heir to sit on the throne, that his kingdom would endure forever. We find that in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 reminds us that Jesus put to shame every ruler and every authority on the cross. Not just generically in some grand sense because he was a great teacher or because he was the son of God. He accomplished the shaming of every rule and authority on the cross. On the cross, he demonstrated these things. All of these find their foundation in the cross of Christ. The constitution of the kingdom of God in some ways is written in the blood of Jesus Christ. The coming of the kingdom is possible because Christ died on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. We ought to recognize that the writers of the New Testament, they echo the past tense verbiage of Christ on the cross. Christ didn't on the cross say, it will be finished. I'll get to it. He said, it is finished. And the New Testament writers speak in those same present tense, past tense language. Now, there is much future hope for Christians. There is much future expectation. Don't get me wrong. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, stand up and say, behold, it is done. He says it a second time at the end in the fullness of his kingdom. So he says it on the cross and he says it at the end. In the middle, he is doing it. But the victory is already won. The work is already complete. He is now, as Corinthians 15 tells us, he is putting every enemy under subjection under his feet. He is reigning until every enemy is made his footstool. So the New Testament teaches us that it is a finished work. I believe even so far as even here, Satan is bound by the work of Christ, by the freeing of God's people to believe and to be saved to pass from death to life, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. He who believes in me has passed from death to life. In Christ, this has already taken place. Satan is bound in preparation for the outpouring of the gospel and the discipling of all nations. Jesus said again in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. 
So go and make disciples. Go and subdue the earth. The disciples went out and they saw transformation. They saw revival because the outpouring of God's spirit took place after the death of Christ on the cross. It is finished, he declared. John Gill, a commentator, said, and it was as good as done. It was sure and certain and so complete that it nothing needed and could not be added to it. And it was done, listen to this, entirely without the help of man. Wow. The work of God completed without the help of man. Finished on the cross of Christ and it cannot be undone. Another commentator put it this way. I love this. Like some traveler ready to depart who casts a final glance over his preparations and satisfied that nothing is omitted, gives his charioteer the signal and rolls away. Jesus Christ looked back over his life's work and knowing that nothing was omitted and all was accomplished, summoned his servant death and departed. Friends, I I want us to see that when Christ declared it is finished, we must believe that it is done. Your sin is done if you are in Christ. Colossians also teaches us that there was a certificate of death that belonged to each one of us. A certificate that only could be cashed in for death. And Colossians teaches us that on the cross, he canceled the certificate of death that belonged to you. On the cross, that certificate was canceled. Before you were born, your certificate of death was canceled against you if you are in Christ today. You cannot do anything to add to the work of Christ. It is done. Stop beating yourself up because you think you can't carry your own butt into heaven. You can't. You cannot improve upon the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot add to it. Your works do not fit into the work of Christ. It is finished. It's complete. It's done. The book is closed. That's why Ephesians tells us God has prepared for you good works. Any good work that you do, God did it for you. He made it for you that you would walk in it. God doesn't need our work because Christ has worked on our behalf. He has given to God a righteous life and God has given to him the blessings of the covenant. The work is done. It's finished on your behalf. You can rest. If you feel like it, if you know where Hebrews is, I want you to turn to Hebrews just quickly. Hebrews chapter 4. Because this is the essential meaning of the declaration that it is finished. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, God's rest, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. And the writer of Hebrews makes clear that on the seventh day when God made the heavens and the earth, God rested. That's the rest that we are invited to enter with Christ. It's a rest from work. The rest of God is a rest from work. 
Those who are in Christ have rested from their work. We no longer work to try to get to God because we can't. I mean, so many people say, yes, I would love to be in heaven. Yes, I would love to know God. And I'm trying my best. I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to help my neighbor. I'm trying to love my wife. I'm trying to please God. The message of the gospel is it is finished. God is pleased in Christ. So rest from your work. Take joy in the completion of God's work in Christ. So we stop our work as God stopped his on the seventh day. This is the gospel. So by the same way that we cannot improve upon the work of Christ, the inevitable reign of Christ can neither be slowed or defeated. In the, in the gospel of Luke, in the trial against the Jews, Jesus said to them, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. There is an inevitable reign of Christ. There is a coming of his kingdom to which we are subjects. It's a victorious kingdom. Now, John does not include in his telling the outpouring of spontaneous and spiritual miracles that took place during the crucifixion. I'll just list them. The temple curtain was torn, split in two from top to bottom, which it was a giant curtain, by the way. There was an earthquake. The sky turned black. The centurion spontaneously believed in Christ. There was salvation to the thief beside Jesus. The dead were raised out of their tombs and went into Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. Did you know that? The dead were raised when Christ died. All of these were just mere evidence that the glory of Jesus Christ had been declared from the cross in the words, it is finished. His death was so powerful unto the new life of people who would be in him that graves spontaneously gave up the dead. Do you not think that God can revive you? That God can give you a new heart? That he can give you a new start? A righteous life? And then the third section, we have the testimony. The gospel witness. So John describes the aftermath of this in order to magnify the reliability of his account and to essentially give credence to his witness. That's what the Gospel of John's all about, man. I mean, none of us live during Jesus' time. We rely on witnesses. And John bolsters his witness with this uh, account. It was the day of preparation, which is Friday, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews' Sabbath was Saturday. The Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of the prisoners. Because you relied on your legs to draw in breath. You would push down on your legs so that your lungs could open up and draw breath. And so if your legs were broken, that was the only way you could stay alive on the cross. Because technically speaking, none of your vital organs were damaged. You would slowly suffocate. It was the worst type of death. And so the Jews asked, can you break their legs? Because we don't want this messiness taking place on our Sabbath tomorrow. And so the Romans obliged and they went to go break their legs. And when they came to Christ, what does it say? They came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. In verse 33, it says that. So they did not break his legs. Uh, that's, un that's unequivocally a reference to the Passover lamb that God demanded that they do not break the legs of the Passover lamb. The Psalms also say none of his bones were broken. This is to fulfill scripture. This is to fulfill the Jewish scriptures so that they would believe even though the leaders rejected Jesus Christ, John is pleading, please believe the signs. 
And so they leave Jesus' bones alone because he was already dead. And then it says, they pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. Remember, John was there. It says that he was at the foot of the cross, and Jesus called out to him. And he says, I was there. I saw the blood and water come out. I saw that they didn't break his legs. I saw the two Jews who come, who came to help. He says, I saw these things. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. He's saying, I promise you, I know what I saw, and it's true. And he's urging his listeners, would you believe? Would you believe in this? And then it says that these were written so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he lists the two scriptures that were fulfilled here. Number one, that none of his bones will be broken there at the end. And again, the scriptures say, um, they will look on him who they pierced. Now that's, and, and, I, and I'd like you to turn there as well, Zechariah chapter 12. It's this second passage that I think gets home the point of what uh, John is teaching us. Zechariah can be tough to find. It's right near the end of the Old Testament. There's Malachi after it, and, uh, and then that's the end. So if you're in the Gospel of Matthew, just turn back a couple pages. In Zechariah chapter 12, this is, a, this is the scripture that John is saying is fulfilled. And again, we sang about it this morning a little bit. I'm going to read from uh, ch- uh, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad, Rimnon in the place of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn each family by itself. And then there's a few more details, but then look at chapter 13. I want you to see this in chapter 13, verse one. On that day, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. John says, I saw it. They pierced his side and blood came out and water came out. This was to fulfill a passage that spoke about that and finished with there being a fountain opened to the house of David, a cleansing of their sin. From this wound came blood and water And reading in Zechariah describes the wound as preceding a fountain which would open up to cleanse people from their sin. First, the house of David. We know that salvation came first to the Jews. Now, God could merely have just forgiven sin. That's what the blood is for. The blood is for atonement. The blood is to say the penalty for your sin is paid. Your sin is atoned for. But what's the water for? It's to cleanse you. It's to make you a new creation before God. That's what's beautiful about the cross of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just to say, well, now you and God are just neutral. Now God's not going to squash you because he's paid for your sin. It's also to say God is going to clean you up. He's going to take you in his hands. He's going to mold you. He's going to cleanse you from sin. Blood and water poured out from Christ. John says, I am telling you the truth that you may believe. We need to believe this. To hear this and forget does not help. To hear it and ignore it does not help. To hear it and just approve of it does not help. You must believe. This is the crux of the message 
of John's gospel, the king took to the cross and by his own authority, he laid down his life to take our punishment, to cleanse us, to claim us and renew us, to put an end to God's demands according to the law, satisfying his demands and securing an eternal throne for himself. That's what it means that it is finished. This is everything Jesus Christ did on the cross at Golgotha. This all took place according to the perfect knowledge and plan of God. And so I pray you'd forget the cliches of a helpless Jesus who suffered as a demonstration of passive resistance. None of that is true. He is the king of kings, accomplishing the redemption of mankind on the cross. He's the king of the universe, and he's establishing the realities of his eternal kingdom on the cross. And he invites everyone who would believe to be washed and cleansed and brought in. This is why the church has been left on the earth. To be ambassadors, to persuade others, to prepare others for the coming of the king. Because his word is true and we must believe it.